God's going to begin teaching us about sex in Proverbs 5. Yeah, so in the next three chapters, God's going to go into great detail about what is right and what is wrong. And um, quite honestly, it's a subject that in a lot of cases, in a lot of churches, a lot of places, it's avoided. But it shouldn't be because God deals with the subject and God has a lot to say. And so, um, we are going to seek to be rather discreet about it as much as we can, but we can't avoid preaching on the subject and preach through the book of Proverbs. Because God, in these three chapters, the entire fifth chapter, most of the seventh chapter, and the end of the sixth chapter, God addresses the subject repeatedly. So, with that being said, I can't make any apologies for what God has done, and, uh, and I'm not going to. The subject is desperately needed today, but you know, quite honestly, if you go through the Bible, you'll find throughout history that subject needed to be dealt with. In fact, there hasn't been a time in history uh, where the subject hasn't needed to be addressed and dealt with because perversion has abounded since very early in the Bible. I mean, you can go back to the book of Genesis and you have Dinah who was, who was raped by a, a, the son of a king. Uh, you have a, a lady who threw herself at Joseph. You have a number of different uh, lessons in the book of Genesis itself, right at the beginning of, if you would, history, where uh, their perversion abounded and people didn't understand or wouldn't follow what God had said. And so, tonight, we have the opportunity to look at what God has to say about this subject. Um, and so, follow along as I read. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 5, my son, attend unto my wisdom, and bow thine ear to my understanding, that thou mayest regard discretion, and that thy lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of a strange woman drop as in honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Let her feet, or her feet, sorry, her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldst ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy wife far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house. Lest thou give thine honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, and thy labors be in the house of a stranger. And thou mourn at the last, when thy flesh and thy body are consumed, and say, how have I hated instruction and my heart despised reproof and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly. Drink waters out of thine own cistern and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of waters in the streets. Let them be only thine... 
only thine own and not strangers with thee, let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times and be thou ravished always with her love. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. He shall die without instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. And sadly, many have gone astray when it comes to the matter of morals and morality and that which is decent and right. And so let's learn from what God has to say. I've got some outlines for you. I've entitled it. I, you know, I actually had a different title, but I had to change it. Moral Absolutes in a Morally Bankrupt World. Moral Absolutes in a Morally Bankrupt World. I think that is a good way to describe uh, what our world is like today, but here's the honest truth. The more I go through Scripture and the more I've thought through various passages of Scripture, uh, quite honestly, we, we, uh, we live in a day where there's problems and so did everyone else. So, uh, what has God said? Let's pray, ask God to direct us and help us, and then I, it's my prayer that the uh, words of God will, will just stick in your mind and help you. Father, I pray that you would give us guidance and wisdom as we deal with this uh, topic, this subject that uh, sometimes is uncomfortable. I understand that uh, being in a, in a mixed crowd, it can be even more uncomfortable, and yet Proverbs 5 is in the Bible for a reason. And I pray that you'd help me to be discreet in the way we deal with subjects, but this subject, but Father, help me also to say what needs to be said. And I pray that you'd give us discernment and open our understanding and our eyes to truth. And, and may you just guide us and direct us that we might think right about this matter of sex in our day. And I'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. In March of the year 2000, Alex Comfort died in London. That probably means absolutely nothing to you, and you probably have very little interest uh, in that fact, but it was what he wrote that had an impact upon his generation, and quite honestly, it's still afflicting our world today, at least his philosophy of the subject. So what made Comfort so well-known? Well, he was known as the author of the book called The Joy of Sex. Obituaries in the liberal press hailed him as a great progressive figure. What a man who wrote what people needed to hear. The book was written back in 1972, and it was an international sensation. It was, um, uh, it was subtitled A Gourmet's Guide to Lovemaking sold 12 million copies and was a tool in what many call the sexual revolution that took place in America from the 1960s through the 80s, and quite honestly, it's continued on. It was a revolution that was grounded in the philosophy of, uh, here's the way they word it, radical personal autonomy. In other words, 
Do what feels good. Do whatever you want. What makes you happy is all that's important. Whatever you want, do it. This book left little to the imagination. It actually became a status symbol. People would put the book in their home on their, on their table as a way of showing their sophistication. And uh, they also showed that they refused to, to follow the, the traditional morality that was being taught in the churches that many of those people attended. And that was the way Comfort wanted it. Prior to writing the book, Comfort was an outspoken advocate for sexual freedom. And he condemned the prudery of traditional sexual mores. He embraced anarchy and rebellion. All that was present in the 60s and 70s were very positive in his uh, view, and the book affirmed that very thing. He espoused free love. At least that was a moniker he lifted up in his book. Uh, there is... And quite honestly, there's no such thing as free love. There's always a cost to sexual looseness. And God in his word deals with that subject. And in the passage we just read, our text reminds us uh, that sexual looseness may well result in destructive disease. Look in verse 11. And thou mourn at the last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. Often there's material cost. Verse 10, let strangers be filled with thy wealth. That sexual looseness is addicting and controlling in verse 22. And so as we dig into this chapter, we're going to find that God says a lot of things in opposition to Mr. Comfort and many others who have promoted what we see so prevalent in our society today. And sadly, many churches aren't talking about it. Maybe because it's just sometimes hard to deal with. But it's important. So let me give you a preliminary introduction to the entire chapter. A preliminary introduction. We're going to just kind of take the chapter as a whole, at least at the beginning in this first point, and kind of give you, if you would, an, an overview or an overall idea that you need to understand. And kind of, uh, maybe this will lay the groundwork for being able to walk through the chapter as we're going to do uh, shortly. But this first point will be just an introduction to it. And first truth I want you to understand is that God has wisdom regarding sexual activity. God has wisdom regarding sexual activity. There is a right and wrong in the matter of sex. Now, this is not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. Uh, it's not up for acceptance or rejection. It is the truth. And God states that in a very unique way when he starts this chapter by saying, or Solomon writes, my son, attend unto my wisdom. This is my wisdom. Now, it wasn't Solomon saying, this is what I have. It's what God has given me. And son, I'm trying to teach you what." God expects. So ultimately, this is God's wisdom. Do you know, we, we live in a day today where, where people want to act like, hey, whatever you decide, whatever your heart tells you is right. And as a result, we've got people in churches, some living immorally together, and no one ever says anything about it. Uh, we, have, we have young people getting pregnant in churches, and, 
and the church remaining silent? Well, because why? Well, because you just have to follow your heart. And God says, no, stop following your heart. Learn my wisdom. And my wisdom will tell you what you need to do, what you shouldn't do, what you ought to do, what's right and what's wrong. We need to hear that. God has wisdom regarding sexual activity. And anyone who says differently is, is lying to you. Because God himself begins this chapter. And then in verse 7, he repeats that idea where Solomon says, Hear me now, therefore, O ye children. And he opens it up. He isn't just my son. He says, I want all my kids to hear this. I want everyone to know that this is wisdom. It's wisdom from God. Second thing, what God thinks then is important. That's deep, right? Are you, you're, you're, what God thinks is important. Notice how he begs his son, my son, attend unto my wisdom and bow thine ear to my understanding. I'm going to deal with the subject now that's important for you, that thou mayest regard discretion, that thy lips may keep knowledge. He begs his son to listen, claims this information is wisdom, it's understanding, it's knowledge, and we're told it's discretion found in verse 2. You see that? Do you know what word discretion, actually a root word it comes from? A plan. And I love that. I think it gives us a picture that what we find in chapter 5 is God's plan for sexual activity, actually sexual desire. God's plan. And we could have entitled the outline that, although I, you know, I've already, you know, I've already said enough. I know as far as pretty straightforward about the subject, but uh, we could have called it God's plan for sexual matters, and we need God's plan desperately today. Do, do you under? Do I even have to say that? Um, young people and. Churches like ours who um, are faced with a society that is extremely loose in their morals to the point where, um, you know, there, there was a day not too long ago when I was a kid, you would date for a while or at least this is what you would hear, is you would date at least for a while before you would get involved in any kind of sexual activity. But today, uh, often it's a first date expectation. And that, my friends, is frightening. What God thinks about this is important. And Solomon reiterates that in verses 1 and 2, and then he comes back and he hits it again, as we just mentioned a few moments ago in verse 7, to just stress this again. Look, here, Matthew Henry said this about these verses, these introductory verses, that thou mayest act wisely, that thou mayest regard discretion. Solomon's lectures are not designed to fill our heads with notions, with matters of nice speculation or doubtful disputation, but to guide us in the government of ourselves that we may act prudently so as becomes us and so as will be for our true interest. Do you know what's kind of sad about this? Is Solomon didn't listen to his own advice. And his own life is a testament to the fact 
that loving many women in a wrong way is destructive. They turned his heart from God. And it was all because he didn't listen to his own counsel. Yet we're told to, and God expects it. Third truth, introduction. Sexual desires are from God. Now, someone would say, well, pastor, that statement isn't made in this passage. Actually, it is. I'll share that in a moment. But quite honestly, that's assumed that people would understand that sexual desires are from God. Solomon, from experience, knew that all men and women have desires. Where did they come from? They came from God's plan. For one man and one woman to be married and to enjoy one another. They come from God's plan back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 and 20, 27 and 28, when Adam and Eve were told to replenish and fill the earth. You say, well, what does replenishing and fill the earth have to do with, with sexual desires? Where do you think it comes from? What, what do you think Abraham and Sarah did when they were told they were going to have a son? See, those desires are not dirty, filthy, evil in and of themselves. They're natural. They're right in their proper realm, but they're sinful out of that realm. Our passage says that sensual thoughts about one's wife is a good thing. He says, let her breast satisfy thee at all times. That's pretty straightforward. Um, where does God tell us in this passage that sexual desires are natural and normal? And no one's going to want to answer that question. But it does tell us. Do you know where? Look in verse 15. God, in a very discreet way, says this, drink waters out of thine own sister and running waters out of thine own well. Do you know what he does? He uses the picture of someone's ownership of a well, water, thirst, to describe sensual desires that are right. And wrong. Drink water from your own cistern. Um, we'll get to that a little bit later on. But he addressed the subject of desire and meeting them in the context of, of marriage, and he illustrates that by thirst. What's more normal and natural than thirst? And, and thirst is not sinful. It's a normal, natural desire. So so is, so are sensual desires. In their right place, they have a place. 
And the reason we have to say that is because, quite honestly, there are Christians, there are some who are taught in churches like ours, all their lives, this is dirty, it's wrong, it's bad. And it's not in its right place. And some enter marriage thinking that those desires are somehow dirty when they're not with a husband and wife. And there are some couples that have to get over that hang-up. It's normal, it's natural, and God tells us in the passage itself that these things are going to be, you know, it's what you do with them that's important. So, fourth, there's a destructive way and a productive way to fulfill those desires. Where do you find that? The whole chapter. Verses 3 to 14, destructive. 15 to 19, productive. Right way, wrong way. Destructive way, productive way. Evil way, good way. I mean, there's, I don't know how much, how many other ways you want, you want to put it. We'll just leave it right there. By the way, what's interesting to me in chapter 5 is that the Bible, though it doesn't address the subject directly here, this passage strongly suggests that God created sexual desire for the opposite sex. This is free, but it needs to be said. Homosexuality and any such perversion is not normal. It's not inborn. God didn't make them that way. It's what they've chosen. The desire God places is for the opposite sex. And that's where the battle needs to be, uh, needs to be fought in this chapter. So we have to conclude no one is born with homosexual desire because the original purpose of the drive was for the propagation of the human race according to God's design. And the only reason men have a desire for men is because they have said no to God, not because they were born that way. And I know there's, I've heard preachers even say, well, we know science has proven people are born that way, not according to God and his word. And this passage supports that idea. It's abnormal, it's perverse, and God says normal desires for the opposite sex. Fifth truth, you are expected to control these desires. If there's a destructive way and a productive way to fulfill those desires, then obviously here, this point is kind of like expected. You're expected to control these desires. Um, you say, well, where, where, do you find, where do you find that? The whole chapter, verses 3 to 14, you're to reject the enticement to wrong. You're to reject the enticement to wrong. And verses 15 to 19, you are to enjoy that which is right. 
Um, you know, I said that we live in a day where there's a real looseness in this matter. Uh, let me just share with you an, uh, a story I came across, a, a sad, as far as I'm concerned, a sad story. It was in the New York Times. We Lee Jong, I guess that's how you pronounce it, broke up with his girlfriend. He was a young New York attorney. He set out to meet someone new, but instead of relying on introductions by friends or his professional contacts, contacts, sorry, Zhang did what increasing numbers of people his age are doing. He placed an internet personal ad. This was, again, written of in the New York Times. His experience was chronicled in the paper. His personal ad was posted along with what he admits was a flattering photo and one of many webs, uh, on one of, may, one of many websites devoted to matchmaking. Within two months, he had more than 70 dates, some, 70 women, sometimes more than one a night. By his estimation, a third of those went home with him, which was ultimately saying they got involved in a physical relationship with him. And he's one example of many we could find in a world where Sexual interludes are commonplace, and that moral bankruptcy, let me tell you, is just is destroying. It's destroying right and proper love. It's destroying the minds and hearts of people. And we may not see such a blatant disregard in Christianity, but quite honestly, there's a disregard for that which is true and right in Christianity, and there's there are a lot of Christian young people who are just confused and need God's help. So God tells us that there are desires that are wrong, but there are desires that are right. You know, since the desire itself is not sinful, God designed a way for it to be satisfied and met through marriage. A relationship between a man and a woman who have made a covenant with one another. And that is the only way that sexual fulfillment is proper and right in God's plan. Henry Ford gave some sage advice when asked on his 50th wedding anniversary, his rule for marital bliss and longevity. He said, just the, just the same as in the automobile, automobile business, stick to one model. Good advice, quite honestly, God's advice. So, Roman numeral two, oh, pointed instruction, pointed instruction. That's an introduction to a chapter, and we're going to get into the pointed instruction next time. It's probably good to just leave it right there, okay? So, we get the pleasant task of continuing to look at this important subject. And I, um, I hope by God's grace you'll have, you'll have God's view and that you'll understand it. And let me say this. This is not just for teenagers. This is not just for young people. This is for everyone. Of every age. He deals with a man who's married. And he gives him some pointed instructions in regard to this matter. And so we'll see that next time we have opportunity.